Welcome to Order Up, the restaurant operations podcast brought to you by Ops Analytica. Hey, it's Tommy. Um, if you don't currently have an ops management platform like Ops Analytica in your business, then I hate to be the one to tell you, but you are losing to your competitors that do. It is 2021. If you honestly believe that the world we live in today with technology the way it is, that you can still compete with other chains that have real-time visibility into their operations, that have the ability to identify issues, to crowdsource solutions, and are able to then roll out process changes in hours or a day or two versus weeks or months, if you think you can beat them, then you are crazy, right? I see what our clients are doing with our platform every day. They are incrementally getting better because they manage their entire system like a GM manages a restaurant. You cannot compete with that. Data is not going away. Technology is not going away. You cannot operate like this is 1985 anymore. You have to get real about your operations. You can't back into it by looking at customer satisfaction and food costs and labor costs and all that stuff. You got to have real-time ops data so you can manage your business better. And Ops Analytica is dying to help you make that transformation. Uh, Check us out at opsanalytica.com. Hello there, Order Up Show. I am back with another episode. It is Tommy here with another interview. Let me welcome to the show, Jeff Sweetman. How are you doing, Jeff? I'm doing great, Tommy. Thanks for having me on board. Oh, you're so welcome. Uh, Jeff and I uh, worked together on with one of his clients, which we'll get into, I'm sure, during the podcast, and I was dying to have him on. Uh, so welcome, Jeff, to the show. Uh, let's get started. Uh, first question. Explain what you do today and then take us through your career progression from your first job until now. Well, thanks, Tommy. So I am the president and CEO of Franchise Makeovers, LLC. It's a strategic franchise advisory firm that specializes in transforming brands that are at critical inflection points of their life cycle um, with particular focus on startups, uh, high growth brands and turnarounds. And uh, my career in franchising began in 1987, actually, with Subway. Um, I was hired uh, by the development agent for Los Angeles County. So the way that Subway wanted to rapidly expand was they had master franchisors that they licensed across the country who were responsible for developing those markets. And uh, they did everything from franchise sales to site locating to the supply chain to local marketing, et cetera. And in return, uh, these companies got one third of the franchise fees and royalties. So I worked for the development office in Los Angeles County. And just to put it in perspective, when I started, there were only 60 subways in LA County. There are now more than 760. So. Um, I, I really wow. started at yeah, yeah at its infancy, and um, I, I I started there as a franchise consultant, and uh, I was hired to do two things: open stores and inspect stores. And I opened on average one and a half to two stores uh, a month, 
And then I had a portfolio of about 25 locations that I had to inspect a month. So um, I was lucky to have one or two days off a month, but I absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved it because our goal was to grow Subway to be the number one franchise in terms of units in the world, more than McDonald's. And uh, I was very proud to belong to a brand like that. And as we grew, so did my career progression with Subway. So eventually I went to regional director of operations and then director of operations. And then eventually I became vice president of operations where all of the business functions of that office, everything from franchise sales, um, real estate, marketing and operations and training all rolled up to me. So I was there for um, 15 years. I think what I was probably most proud of having accomplished there is the fact that during, for all 15 years that I was there, we were number one in average unit volume, in average franchisee profitability, and in guest experience wow. scores. Um, the other thing was that our market was allowed to, actually all of the subway markets were allowed to innovate because um, they understood that all the best ideas came from came locally, uh, particularly from franchisees. So much of what you see in Subway today came from innovation in the Los Angeles County market. And that includes the assembly line system, the, um, the, uh, the different kinds of bread, seasoned breads that you see there, even the meal deals, the footlong promotions, those all came from LA County, uh, franchisees and our team working together to be able to grow the brand. So very, very proud of that. The, next, cool. the next milestone in my career was with Duncan Brands. So um, I was hired as director of operations for, um, for the Togo's sandwich division. So um, this was, a, this was a 180 degrees difference than what I had experienced with Subway, which was rapidly growing. In the case of Togo's, uh, this was a brand that was rapidly declining. Um, in its heyday, Togo's was founded in Northern California. It was a regional brand. And uh, at one point, it was, it was averaging $850,000, $900,000 in sales. And they had a lot of million dollar locations. And they were just killing the competition. Uh, in, in California. Um, the brand was that, that strong. And then they sold it to Duncan Brands um, as part of a tri-brand concept. So that this was back in the days when Yum Brands was um, putting three different concepts in one box, thinking that yeah. the math would be one plus one plus one would equal five. And so yeah. Duncan Brands thought, well, you know, if you put a Dunkin' Donuts and a Baskin Robbins and a Togo's together, the, you'd have the same kind of math. Well, Duncan found out the same thing that Yum did, was that math doesn't work. As a matter of fact, one plus one plus one equals two. And so um, <laughs> as they were trying to change the brand to, um, to fit into the tri-brand concept, the sales just plummeted, just plummeted. And um, so Togo's went from averaging about $850,000 to close to $500,000. And so stores were just dropping like flies. A lot of, we had a lot of lawsuits. And so they hired a lot of different um, leaders, leaders to come in and try and turn the, the brand around. No, nothing seemed to work. And then they um, hired a brand new leadership team, of which I was part of it. They brought in a new brand officer. They brought in um, a completely new management team. 
uh, and I was hired in to be the director of franchise um, operations in Southern California to, to help turn it around, and we did. In less than three years, uh, we increased sales more than 20%. We increased franchisee EBITDA by about 350 basis points, and, uh, and our guest experience scores went up dramatically. And matter of fact, we did such a great job of turning the brand around that they sold us to a private equity firm, and, um, uh, and we stayed on. I stayed on as a director of uh, franchise operations for Southern California. And um, we had to turn the brand around again when the recession hit in 2008-2009. And uh, we did such a good job of turning it around in Southern California that I was promoted to director of operations for the entire brand. And so now I had Northern California as, as well. Um, and again, we turned that around. So um, my next major milestone, um, this was a kind of a sandwich trifecta, was I went to go work for, <laughs> for Quiznos. Quiznos, um, um, again, they, um, you know, at one point, Quiznos had more than 5,000 locations. Um, um, and when they first opened up in Southern California, I remember I went to the first Quiznos I went to, it was in Orange, California, and it totally blew me away. The quality of the food was so vastly superior to anybody in the category. I said, oh my God, matter of fact, I remember when I, when I drove to my office and I spoke to the president of Subway at the time, I said, these guys are gonna kill us. And, I don't, and we gotta figure out a way to beat them. And matter of fact, it was because of Quiznos that we came out with the seasoned breads, that we came up with the um, assembly line system. We came up with new sauces. We, it was all to compete with, with Quiznos. We actually took a very aggressive offensive position on real estate because we didn't want Quiznos to take the sites. So we would take sites just so that Quiznos would not get them. We were that, sure. that scared about the brand. And, um, but by the time I got into Quiznos, there were not 5,000 stores anymore. There were only 2,200 stores. And they hired me as the Western Regional Vice President um, it was about 550 locations in the Western United States. It was by far the largest scope I had ever had. And I had 16 uh, franchise consultants. Uh, I also had three local marketing managers that I was responsible for. I had two regional directors of operations. Um, so largest span in terms of number of direct reports and indirect reports and, of course, number of stores. And it was all of our jobs as regional vice presidents to turn the brand around. And the Western region was the worst performing region of all. It also had some of the highest volumes, but it had the worst sales declines. So um, yeah, I think in about six months, while we didn't turn it around to get positive sales growth, we, we turned it around to be the best performing of all the regions in, uh, in the brand. So Atlanta, we, we started to stop some of the bleeding of, of closures. And so um, after about, after about a, nine months of being there, the COO of the company left to go to Arby's, and they promoted me to be the executive vice president of um, Quiznos, working out of the corporate office in Denver. And um, so I was very proud of the fact that by working collaboratively with franchisees, we put together a promotion right before I left the company that had the highest net sales growth of anything they had done in five years. It was, it was really kind of a month of promotions and um, new products that we rotated in every week for a period of about four to six weeks. And it really excited uh, consumers. 
and you really started to see a, uh, throughout the entire brand. And um, so it was, uh, it was very, very positive. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the seeds of, um, of uh, I should say, of, um, of bankruptcy uh, were still there. And the, the company filed bankruptcy again in, I think it was in December of 2014. And um, uh, so in 2015, January 2015, they eliminated about 50% of the positions in the organization, including my own. So the next milestone was I went to go work for a company called Yogurtland. Yogurtland was the pioneer of self-serve yogurt. And it started in Southern California. Uh, when I got there, there were about 300 locations. Um, uh, and I was hired by the founder, Philip Chang, to completely rebuild the organization. Uh, the summer before, he had completely uh, eliminated all of the senior uh, executives, all the middle managers of the team, because he did, he did not believe that they were following his vision uh, for the organization. They didn't think he, that they were practicing his values. So his philosophy was to amputate. So he basically amputated everybody. He brought me in to, um, as vice president of operations to rebuild the organization, rebuild the culture, and rebuild trust with the franchisees. And that's what we did in my first year. Um, I hired a whole new executive team, uh, development, marketing, supply chain. We brought in new accounting people. We brought in new IT people, um, et cetera. And um, I started working collaboratively with the franchisees. We, we, created a, um, we recreated the Franchisee Advisory Council to start working on things that were of critical importance to them, uh, particularly a new POS system, bringing in a new distributor, doing more, um, bringing in, we brought in ice cream into the brand. And uh, as a result of, of working together with them in our first year, we um, reversed 5% sales declines uh, successively in the previous three years. We were now up in sales 3.1% the very, very first year I started there. Uh, we increased our global footprint 30%. We um, got into new markets internationally in Southeast Asia and the Middle East. And we also did new market entry into Texas. And uh, we had a fill-in strategy in um, in California. So we were now seeing positive uh, sales. We were now seeing um, increase in, um, in, in store openings. And we also increased um, franchisee, the return on investment for, for people because we re dramatically reduced the um, cost of entry from, it was, believe it or not, it was $450,000 at least to open oh. a yogurt shop, to open a yogurt shop. Yeah. And most of that was in the machines themselves and for some reason they they were of the belief that you needed to have eight machines um and but the reality was that most of the purchases were only from about you only really needed about no more than six machines um so we thought well we don't really need to have eight machines so we'll cut back on the number of machines we also um a lot of the uh, of the decor inside was custom made it was very, very expensive. So we moved to have more things that were made um, that were off the shelf that looked similar to what we had, but it wasn't custom made. So the idea was to shave the cost from 450 to 375. And we figured if we can, and we also wanted to reduce the labor costs. Now, even though the labor costs were already low because it was self-serve, um, we wanted to get it even lower by having self-pay. 
So uh, one, of the, one of the great things about the new POS system that we had was that you could turn it around and you could pay yourself. And we wanted to create an experience where if you wanted to, you could go into a yogurt land and you don't have to talk to anybody. And we actually found out that most sure. customers don't want to talk to anybody. <laughs> they really don't. They just want to get sure. in and get out and get what they want. And so, um, so now you could do that. You can go to a yogurt land, fill in, your, get your yogurt, put on your toppings, go to the self-pay station, and leave. You're done. And wow. customers loved it. We loved it. Reduced our labor costs, um, and um, and really helped uh, our franchisees with their with their return. Um, it was from there. I was actually hired out of there, recruited out of there by a company called Fujisan, and. Um, Fujisan, what they do is that they franchise um, sushi bars to grocery stores across the country. I, I, I had always thought, like probably most people listening, that the sushi bars and grocery stores were owned by the grocery store. Well, not so. They are usually, like I say, um, contracted out to companies that uh, franchise it um, to, uh, to chefs who run the sushi bars. So Fujisan... Um, had about 275 sushi bars in Sam's Clubs and other regional uh, grocery stores across the country. But um, their goal was to get to 800 locations within three years. And the reason was because um, your multiple um, in terms of valuation goes up substantially when you go from 250 to 800. You know, at 250, anywhere from 250, maybe 400, 500 locations, your multiple may be, you know, anywhere from five to seven or eight times. When you get up to um, 800 locations, it can get up to 12 times. And so, um, so that was the goal, was to get there. Well, we weren't on pace to do that. We were struggling to open up um, 75 to 80 stores a year. So at that rate, we would not get to the 800 stores in three years. So, um, so they, brought, hired, they brought me in to be able to give them a clear path to 800 stores in three years, and that's what I did. So within the first six months that I was there, we were having a run rate of openings of 15, 16 um, sushi bar openings a month. And um, so we created the infrastructure, the resources to really be able to scale growth and get us to a place where we might be able to open up up to 20 stores a month and that would get us to the 800 in in three years um, we also reversed sales declines we had been down in sales five percent a year for the previous two years within four months we were up five percent in sales after working there for about 10 months though one of the things i learned was that the importance of culture because um, the um, i obviously did not do enough diligence on the culture of the organization because even though we were exceeding all of our kpis um, uh, it was just, it was it, the, the leadership of the company was, I was just misaligned with them. It was an extremely authoritarian organization and, um, uh, abusive. Uh, and, and so I, it just was not worth it to me anymore. I tried to do everything I could to make it work. I couldn't. So I just, I left the company after 10 months and, um, started my own consulting company, which is the franchise makeovers LLC. And one of my first clients that I had was a sushi and a sushi was in in very similar situation as uh, fujisan was they really wanted to scale their growth and so that's what i have been working with them on it's one of the projects i've been working with them on um because when i got there i mean they were you know opening you know 
four or five stores a month. And uh, uh, over the last year, they've opened over 100. They're on pace to open up probably another 145. And um, again, we developed the infrastructure and the resources to be able to get it up to that level. And so um, now I have uh, three other clients that I'm working with for a variety of different things. I have a couple of startups that I'm working on. I have another high growth brand that I'm working with as, uh, as well. So that kind of brings you full circle, Tommy. <laughs> so, which I, okay, so first of all, Jeff and I both worked at Quiznos, so we'll have to jump in that. Jeff, yeah. I actually have two podcasts that I recorded, I guess two, uh -huh. I'm gonna look, about how to save Subway. <laughs> um, which I would love for you to listen because like, I, and I was basing it off of my experience at Quiznos, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, I make these very, you know, I make very grand claims about what, what I would do if I was the president of Subway. Um, mm -hmm. because, uh, cause I mean, I love Subway, like, you know, I, I actually enjoy Subway sandwiches. Like I like them. I have, I, we had four in my area one like there were four originally in my area mm -hmm. and um and i think now there's maybe one mm -hmm. two you know so two of them died but you know subway was always known for overdeveloping areas you know and, mm -hmm. and, and same with quiznos too but that's also it's kind of like how all restaurant operators complain about Yelp because one time and like 20 years ago, somebody like their competitor wrote a bad review about them. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like I, not every Yelp review is false, right? Just mm -hmm. like not every time you open another restaurant does it cut the current restaurant in half either, but whatever. We can get into all that kind of stuff. So, okay, cool. We got through question number one. I have questions I want to talk to you about. Um, let's talk about um well so subway so you were in you were there at the subway heyday when subway mm -hmm. was the coolest thing right now oh, subway's yeah. kind of uh it's kind of a joke i mean and so is quiznos to mm -hmm. be honest with you too unfortunately um what would you do to fix subway let's just go let's go down that path let's have that conversation and then we'll talk quiznos next i would listen to the franchisees i yeah. think the um what grew Subway, the, um, the girl that Subway took to the dance was its franchisees. And then at yeah. some point, they decided that we don't need, the need to listen to the franchisees anymore. And we're going to make all the decisions. And they centralized all the decision making in Milford, Connecticut. And that's when they started to go down. Every brand that I have worked for, the secret to growing or turning around the brand has been when they created the conditions that enabled the franchisees to help make decisions with them. Every, almost sure. everything that I worked on with the with uh, with at Subway that grew the brand came from franchisees. I could give you a long list of them. There's also a uh, a great book by David Novak, you know, who used to be the CEO of Yum Brands. It's called Bringing Them With You. And he talks about the fact that, and he used to be the CEO for, I think, at least two of Yum! Brands. I think he for Taco Bell and Pizza Hut. And he turned around both of those. And he said the secret to turning around those was humility. 
it was about putting your pride and your ego aside and saying, you know what, we don't have all the answers. Let's talk to our operators because they're closer to the front lines. They have more skin on the game and they know what works and what won't work. Because oftentimes companies like to introduce things that either have too high of a food cost, they're too complicated, there's too many SKUs. Franchisees don't want to, to, to uh, sell things like that. And it may not be something that customers want. So you've got to always listen to your franchisees. You've got to create, like I say, the conditions where ideas can come from anywhere. And oftentimes what you find, remember the math that I was telling you about with young brands where they thought one plus one plus one would equal five, equal two. When you yeah. bring franchisees into a room and you have them throw out ideas, that's where you get that math, where one plus one plus one equals five. And so it, the advice I would give to Subway would be you need to sit down with your operators and collaborate with them on what you need to do to fix it. I'm not saying I have the, the, the right idea to be able to do that, but I, I do think that um, they, they walked away from the wellness space and that was the worst mistake that they could have made because they, they did not understand that the consumer, when you say that you're like eat fresh, Every time that we put out our yeah. fresh commercial and we put Jared out there, our sales went through the roof, through the roof. Sure. Right. And, and, and you don't have to discount anything. So um, that was the, one of the best things that Subway ever did. But they didn't understand that consumers get smarter and they started to understand what wellness actually means and to be more critical about sure. it. And so you could no longer put those fillers inside of uh, bread anymore. You, you couldn't yeah. be having, serving the same crap uh, uh, steak and the same crap uh, deli meats that you were doing before. So you yeah. had to change along with the consumer. They never did it. They never did it. And they got caught. And then now they, they could no longer be called a wellness brand. They don't even call themselves a wellness brand, I, mean, I don't think, anymore. So they had to go back to being the low-cost leader. Well, so when they, so, but they couldn't go back there anymore because now you've got Jimmy John's. So yeah. you're, you're no longer the wellness brand. You're no longer the low, low price leader. So who are you anymore? They're nobody. They're nobody. Well, yeah. And I mean, well, and so yeah, a couple things on that. So number one, being the low cost leader is the worst is only person that I know that's really pulled that off. And obviously there, everyone knows them, Walmart, because they have been maniacal in their focus on being the low cost leader. But when you start to be like, so when you start to be the low cost leader in a marketplace, there's always someone who's willing to go lower. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like mm -hmm. there's just always somebody who's willing to do it. And, and then also at some point you can't deliver the thing that people actually want to purchase you know what i mean mm -hmm. like it's just it's tough and with subway like i know when we were at quiznos i remember we had these conversations and you know it might have been rick talking or whoever but it would be like you know or i remember it was the kitchen guys and they were like you know our meat quality is perceived to be the same quality as subway's meat but where we would win would be like because we had better seasonings in it right but like mm -hmm. and so you know, so, but it was like, uh, I don't even know why I brought that up. Well, so we should, okay. So my whole point for, so that's really interesting because basically, yeah, at some point in some way it does feel like it is kind of like a dick, 
dictatorship, right? But mm-hmm. I feel like it's gotten more as a dictatorship over time as uh, as franchisees have been complaining more, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think at corporate, my guess is, is that they're very beat down. You know what I mean? Because they just, all they hear from everybody all the time is everything you do doesn't work and this all sucks. And I used to make $700,000 a year in this one small unit and now I make three and I'm going out of business, right? Because that's how mm-hmm. it was at Quiznos. I don't know if you remember that too, but like that's how it was at Quiznos. Mm-hmm. When we mm-hmm. would, I worked there before you, I was there 08, 09, when we were still in the 4,000, 5,000 range. And I think we were there like 12, weren't you there in like 12 maybe or mm-hmm. i was in there from so, yeah but, 2013 to 2015. yeah so like that was always the impression at quiznos was everything we do fails right like mm-hmm. every every initiative we did would like it could like maybe stop the bleeding for a little bit but like just that solid decline of, of store count was brutal you know yeah. Remind me, Tommy, by the way, um, I, I know that one of your questions may be about, uh, you know, some, uh, something cringeworthy that happened in your past or something like that. Yeah. I, I've got a yeah, great that's example the last question. Of, of exactly what I've been talking about, about humility, about when I was at Quiznos. So remind me to, to uh, tell you that story. Okay, perfect. So, yeah, I will. Cool. Good. I'm dying to hear. Oh, by the way, so, I, so, but, so this podcast is not very disciplined jeff if you haven't figured that out yet it is (laughs) it is very much a reflection of my add personality but i met a guy uh who owns another franchise here in denver they're like those float centers you know where you sit in a tub and like you float on salt water and he was he was one of the original guys at quiznos he was there from 18 to a thousand Oh my! So uh, I'm going to have him on the podcast too. He he also worked at Nick and Willie's and other stuff. But he literally was in my house delivering something the other day, and I was like talking to him. He's like, "Oh, that's Quiznos." I'm like, "I was at Quiznos," and then I knew I was having you on. So uh, anyway, okay, sorry. So back to this point. Okay, so your point with Subway would be, "Hey, listen to your franchisees. They will tell you what the customers want, right?" And mm-hmm. so therefore they can, we can all get this thing back on track together because you have to remember too, for those of you who are listening, the franchisees, they're the ones that are losing their businesses, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, corporate still has enough good stores paying for them that they can keep downsizing. They can get themselves to a point where if they have 500 or 5,000 locations left, they'll still make money at corporate just off those franchisees. But it's the actual people the people that live in your town that have that store in your strip center that are going out of business. And a lot of them are in incredible amounts of debt if they've had a bad store for a while and they're really hurting. So, you know, sometimes I, I feel like I can talk, uh, um, I, I, I don't want people to think that I'm like heartless when I talk about some of the things I talk about on the show. Or like <laughs> if you listen to my, if you listen to my like podcast about like, what you have to do to save Subway. Like, mm-hmm. I don't want people to think that I'm heartless because I do recognize that. But at the same time, it's like, I'm trying to make these bigger, grander points. So my whole point with Subway would be this, that Subway corporate. So here's what happened to Quiznos, right? 
with us. So I ran franchise assistance at Quiznos when I started. So mm -hmm. my job for the first 11 months, I worked at Quiznos and I want everyone to paint this picture, um, was to talk to franchisees who were failing. Um, and this was in 2008. Mm -hmm. So the financial crisis hit and the subway, or the, excuse me, the Quiznos implosion started. Mm -hmm. And we were dropping restaurants like, I was dropping, you know, probably 10, 15 restaurants a week. Mm -hmm. And I learned more in that job than I've learned in any other job because it was like, mm -hmm. I had just gotten out of grad school, mm -hmm. got my second MBA talking to these people. And, and so, you know, we were living through that moment in time. Right. And so what I realized in that case was that the die was already cast on most of these units in the mm -hmm. respect of no one ever called me eight months ahead of time and said, Hey, Tommy, I've noticed that there's a slight downward spiral, like a slight downward trajectory in my sales, you know, mm -hmm. and what can you help me do to boost my sales? I always got the phone call was hi, my landlord's about to evict me. You got to send me four grand. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, obviously we weren't allowed to do any of that. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so like at that point, those people were so far gone. And what I also realized, Jeff, which I thought was very interesting was that people never close the restaurants when they should have. Mm -hmm. So my lesson to anybody who ever goes out and starts a restaurant or any business is know what, write down and give it to your accountant, to your spouse and to your lawyer, the number that you're willing to lose. Mm -hmm. And hopefully you'll never see that number. But if you say it's 40 grand, when I get mm -hmm. down $40,000 or whatever it is, you people have to come and pull the plug on this thing for me. Mm -hmm. People wouldn't do that because when you open a business, it becomes a part of your dream, right? Mm -hmm. It's your mm -hmm. dream. And you go out, you put yourself out there, you put your money on the line, you tell all your friends and your family, hey, I'm going to... Uh, you know, do this thing, right? And mm -hmm. then when it fails, it reflects very poorly on you. And mm -hmm. so people would call me and they'd be like, I'm 25 grand in debt. And then they would call me eight months later and they'd be like, I'm a hundred thousand in debt. And they wouldn't quit because they couldn't face the dream until yeah. their landlord fired them, their, or their bank fired them, or their supplier fired them. Mm -hmm. At that point, they would shut the doors, but they could blame it on someone else, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So which, the psychology of that was like insane to me to like figure all that out. So, and I know I'm monopolizing your podcast here. No, but so no. my plan. <laughs> what I was going to say was, oh, on, I, I think that that's, it's part of the obligation of the franchisor is to have those tough conversations with franchisees to let them know it's time for you to sell or walk because if you I remember yeah I remember when I first started at Subway my uh, the person I reported to said if you really care about your franchisees you tell them the truth you always tell them the truth because it's in their best interest and so I often had to teach my people how to do that because those are tough conversations to have with people yeah oh and I've never heard of that dude I've never heard of that. And I mean, my, yeah. my experience is limited, but I mean, Subway built the back on flipping those franchises too. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because the, the whole, the joke, it wasn't the joke, but like the, the saying at Quiznos was 
the first guy, which is ironic that your yogurt store costs the same amount of money, but like a new build at Quiznos back in the day was like 452. Mm-hmm. And so when you said 450, I was like, holy hell, that's a lot for a yogurt yeah. store. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like, so they would buy the 450 and then they would go out of business and then someone would go buy it for like 150, 200, they would go out of business. And it was the guy that bought it for 50 would actually <laughs> be able to make it work just because the debt load. So it was the third yeah. flip. And that was the big thing that Quiznos like used to justify that Subway kind of had the same plan, right? On those ones too, like that. Cause we always, that, that was always the justification. Well, that's what Subway did. That's how Subway built their restaurants. You know, they just kept flipping them, you know, on people. Yeah. You know, but I, anyway. think, but I would say it was at least in where I was working, it was a little bit different because at least during the sure. time that I was there, people were making money. So what we were, yeah. the flipping that we were encouraging was the bad operators flipping them to the better yeah. operators that we wanted as multi-unit because we wanted to consolidate the market into fewer multi-unit operators. So we had, all of the, we had all the good operators gobble up all of the bad ones and we held the poor operators very strictly accountable. Very. We took them to termination. Sure. And, um, which yeah. is my plan to fix subway is to do mm. that is mm-hmm. find your best operators and get mm-hmm. them in your best locations ruthlessly mm-hmm. just because then you could get down from, what are they like? 20, they were like 30 or 40, they were like 30 or 40,000 at one point, but I think they're going to shake out at like 20, mm-hmm. maybe even less, maybe 10 to 15. Yeah. But like that, that's what I would do. I would figure out how to identify, I would use Ops Analytica to do this, by the way, but I would figure <laughs> out how to identify the best operators, right? And mm-hmm. the best locations. And then I would do everything humanly possible to get the best operators in the best locations and get everybody mm-hmm. else out of the system. Mm-hmm. And then then rebuild. Now mm-hmm. you got a stable brand of five to 10,000 stores of people who are making money and then do what you said, listen to the franchisees and then and then focus on making those guys multi-unit operators, the yeah. ones that are capable of doing it. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think they also need to figure out where do they exist in the marketplace, and that that's yeah. distinctive. Where where can they win in the marketplace? Because they're not winning anywhere now. Now, nah. well, so I've heard this as a rumor. Maybe you can confirm this for me. You may have heard the same thing. Actually, it would be before both of our times. So. It was Subway and Quiznos, and they were battling, right? And at that time, like early 2000s, right? Quiznos mm-hmm. was growing a thousand units a year, so they they were like like started in the mid 80s and got up to like a thousand by like the early 2000s, right? And mm-hmm. then they went on like a three to six year tear, which I mean I've heard the stories about like it it, it was very shady, I think too, mm-hmm. but like they went on a three to five year tear where they just about probably five to seven year tear where they were adding close to, you know, over 500 to a thousand units a year. You know what I mean? And they were mm-hmm. going crazy. Mm-hmm. But then the story is, is that Coke wanted to be Coke was, so Pepsi used to be at Subway mm-hmm. and Coke used to be at Quiznos, mm-hmm. but then Coke really wanted to be in Subway. So they went to Subway and said, Hey, we want to be in here. And then Subway said, okay, you help subsidize these toasters so that we can have toasted sandwiches like Quiznos and we'll flip, we'll kick out Pepsi. 
Mm-hmm. So basically, Coke, in some ways, is part of the demise of Quiznos, and that they took away what was really their, like their, I guess, what have been their brand, the their brand differentiator, which was toasting, which was not a very strong mm-hmm. brand differentiator, by the way. Mm-hmm. They would have said it was recipe subs, but it was really toasting, right? Mm-hmm. And they gave mm-hmm. it to their competitor, mm-hmm. and they flip flopped. And did you hear that too? Oh, that is that is the absolute truth. Yeah. Yep. So I mean, that was crazy. That 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 was crazy that that happened, right? Mm-hmm. And so that that like that triggered that was part of the triggering of the demise of, um, of Quiznos. But then it also like it destroyed their their like brand presence but you're right like subway doesn't have a brand presence anymore and quiznos just doesn't even have a footprint i mean they're probably at, they just constantly are shedding stores still i think they're probably down under 200 now or 300. Mm-hmm. but so yeah so subway was fit and fresh and then they lost it and now they own nothing because mm-hmm. like jersey mike's is popular who do you think are the big subway sub players right now well, Jersey Mike's for sure. Jersey Mike's and uh, Jimmy John's nationally. Yeah, I think those yeah. are probably the two yeah. biggest players. Um, I think that when I remember when I was at Quiznos, uh, we had a lot of uh, researchers come in um, to try and figure out what we needed to turn things around. And they were kind of explaining to us what they saw as the brand story that just as Subway walked away from its space, its wellness space, that Quiznos walked away from its premium quality space. That while yes, sure. we could no longer be known as as the only one that toasts. What we were real, what Quiznos was really known for was for the high quality product, which at one point, well, you know this, definitely had the highest yeah. quality. And it's heyday. It, that quality is still higher than anybody else has out there right now. Yeah. But um, so. Uh, but they walked away from that space and then went toward try to be, you know, with the bullets and the torpedoes, try to get into the price yeah. wars. And so they gave up that space. And who comes into that space? Jersey Mike's comes right into it. So they gave it away. And then well, Jimmy John's going yeah, into the I subway mean, space. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's interesting, too. At one point, Quiznos was the number one consumer and seller of prime rib in the country. Mm, mm. Wow! With those prime rib footlongs back, yeah. like in like when I was there, they yeah. they sold more prime rib than anyone else. Yeah. And you know what's also interesting too, by the way, John Tezza. Do you ever meet John? No. Oh God, that sounds familiar though. John Tezza, right? Yeah. So John yeah. was uh, the head sales guy at Quiznos, and then he went and added a thousand units to Jersey Mike's. Mm. Hmm. And then he was at NRD Capital, which are the guys that bought uh, Ruby Tuesday. And now he's the president and of a massage chain and yeah. chief development officer. Yeah. But I mean, he helped grow Quiznos for years. Yeah. So they walked away. So that's the lesson here, really, if we want to talk about why these sub chains are failing, is they walked away from the initial brand promises that they had established through years of operating in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, and that, that doomed them. And mm-hmm. 
you know, and, and so that really is a huge lesson. It'd be like if KFC started selling burgers, right? Like it would destroy them because people don't associate KFC with burgers. You know what yeah. I mean? Yep. Well, the same thing happened at Unless Togo's. Unless it's a deep fried burger. The same thing happened at Togo's. You know, at, at Togo's, again, they're a regional brand, so a lot of people may not know who they are. But um, yeah. they actually blew away uh, Quiznos and, and Togo's if they came into a market. And um, sure. because they were known for extremely high quality, incredible portions, and low prices. So they combined the quality of Quiznos with the prices of Subway. But the area where they really um, excelled was the quality of the operator. So their franchise uh, model, uh, the founder of the company was one of the smartest guys I've ever met. He said, that, I remember I interviewed him once when I was at Togo's to try and understand what we could do to, to turn it around. And he said, you know, I never wanted to grow that many stores. He says, for me, success was not about the number of units that I had. It was about the profitability of the locations. And for me, volume was everything. Volume, uh, you, you know, you, you know the adage, right? Sales cures yeah. everything. And so I yeah. knew that with my brand, which was more recipe driven, kind of like Quiznos, recipe driven, yeah. that I needed to have strong owner operators. So I didn't want people to own more than one or two stores because you couldn't maintain the same consistency of the product. So he grew very conservatively. And that's why at one point, you know, he had a lot of million dollar stores in Northern California. And, you know, they were averaging 850. Franchisees were making a lot of money. And he wanted to grow very, yeah. very slowly. Matter of fact, he told me the biggest mistake he ever made was going into Southern California. He said that was greedy. I got too greedy. And he said, if in retrospect, I would have stayed in Northern California, been happy with the 200 stores I had up there and just focused on increasing sales. Um, but that's what happens is that, is that so, so it's not only um, it's not uh, pride, but it's also greed that I think gets in the way of a lot of franchisors is they get greedy, like Quiznos marking up the food as much as they did, right? I mean, they marked up everything. <laughs> yeah. And um, uh, oh, no. So it's funny because I was talking to that guy who I'm going to interview, too. And he was like, yeah, he literally said like he was in my house delivering this, this uh, chair we got. And he was like, yeah, AFD. He's like, that was the most unethical. I don't understand how like whoever bought them out. Oh, I can't remember the name of the big company that bought them out, like the big equity firm that gave him like a billion bucks. But like, he's like, I didn't, that was not only was it unethical, but he's like, I can't imagine that was legal that you could just go and like buy the chicken from Tyson's, throw 20% on there and then just have it transferred to Cisco. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was truly a scheme. Mm -hmm. But it's really interesting. This is, this conversation has really devolved into, and I hope the people that are listening are, are seeing these patterns in the conversation. If you're gonna, if you're gonna risk everything to uh, to start a business through a franchise model with a franchisee and a franchisor, then the due diligence that you have to do with that franchisor is huge. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Because mm -hmm. because like subways were and, and you know subways were popular for twenty years. And, uh, and then, you know, then the franchise or got crazy and now like they're really struggling. Quiznos never looked out for the franchisees. 
Mm -hmm. Like that was, if you wanted a reason why that system imploded, it was because of every decision that was made was there to benefit the people who owned Quiznos and none of it was around helping the franchisees be profitable. Mm -hmm. And the only, the only change you can afford to be involved with are the ones that care about the franchisees, mm -hmm. because if they don't care about you, you're going to lose, you're going to go bankrupt. Right. Exactly. Every decision will be against you. Mm -hmm. Every mm -hmm. decision will be against you. Mm -hmm. And it just gets institutionalized. Mm -hmm. You know, like, it's not like the people that worked there were bad people. Like the people at the top who made some of the big sort of incentive based, like crazy decisions like AFD, American Food Distributor, which was the arm of Quiznos that sold all that basically sourced and sold all the food to the franchisees, which was just basically a profit grab for Quiznos corporate. It made more money than Quiznos did at a point or for a lot of years. Like those were all things that were done just to um, no, They were just there to, to get more cash in the pockets of the owners of the chain and had nothing to do with helping the franchisee in any way, shape or form um, run a good restaurant mm -hmm. or, or be profitable. So let me tell you that, uh, I'll, can I tell you that quick story about Quiznos? Yeah. Kind of tell me. You have to have another one too. Into this, yeah. right? So yeah. I, I mentioned to you two qualities of franchisors that you really got to do your diligence about. One is greed. The other one is humility. So, yeah. um, so again, when I was the regional vice president for Quiznos, um, uh, when I, I asked my uh, the CEO of the company when I first started there, how much how much risk can I take here? And he said, the patient is dying. You need to do whatever you can to save the patient. If it's not working, don't tell me about it. I don't want to know about it. If it's working, tell me about it. I'll make sure you get full credit and I'll support you. So he gave he empowered me to take ah. lots of risks there. Right now. So yeah. I'm working with franchisees. So there were two two pain points that Quiznos had at the time. One was high food costs, and the other was the, yep. was the wait time. It was excruciating to wait for a customer to wait in yeah. line, especially if the person in front of you ordered like five or six sandwiches that had to go through. Um, yeah. yeah, right? It took forever to put them through that. Yeah. So, so we got so to solve for these two problems. So in working with some franchisees up in Sacramento, we said, what if we do this? What if we change the, the service model so it's prepaid? Because it used to be you order, you wait for it to be made, and it gets packaged, yeah. and then you pay. I said, let's flip it around. Let's pay first. Let's pay first, and then you can sit in the lobby area. That way you can get the person's name, so you get some personalized service yeah. there. They're, they can be talking with each other, looking at their cell phones or whatever. So for them, the, the wait isn't going to seem as long. And then on top of it, then we're going to bring the food out to them. And instead of putting it in these... Uh, you know, tacky red, the red trays, plastic trays. We're going to put them on nice plates unwrapped with a pickle spear. And if they got chips, you put the chips on there. Boom. Now, now the customer is going to give you permission to increase your prices. So as a result, the perceived weight is shorter. And you can also um, raise your prices, which gets your food costs down. Boom. So I had a franchisee up in um, Roseville. It was Roseville uh, around the Sacramento area. Um, he tested it in his stores. Sales went up double digits, double digits. And so, um, but I kept this hush hush. 
because I didn't want anybody to know this because I, I thought, boy, if our chief marketing officer gets wind of this, she is going to be so upset. But you know what happened was she found out about it. She, she didn't find out what we were doing. What she saw was she saw the double digit sales increases. And I remember I got a call say, from her saying, look, I'm going to be in the um, Sacramento area in the next few days. I'd like to meet you up there and go to the store to see what it is that they're doing, because this is fantastic. I'm going, oh, crap. I'm going to be found <laughs> out. So we, we so she went to the store. She saw everything that we're doing. And she gave the perfunct. You could tell that she was pissed. And um, walked through the store with the franchisee, said the perfunctory things about thank you, very, very nice store. We got in the car. She looks, turns around, and she says, who the F gave you permission to do that? And I said, look, it's my market. I'm accountable for the results. I look at, look at the results. I'm getting double-digit sales increases. And if she was quiet the rest of the time in the car, she said, we'll see about this. Well, apparently she had a conversation with the COO of the company, who was my boss, and I had to cut the program, cut the test. And I said, you told me I could take risks. I said, well, yes, you can take risks, but um, this is probably one you should have told me about. But so here was a solution for franchisees, right? We had a franchisee that was, was, was getting double digit sales increases by changing the model. And instead of looking at that and learning from it and saying, oh, boy, this is great. How, you know, how can we support this? How can we help you? They quashed it because we played in her sandbox and she was unhappy about it. That's ego. She got her ego in the way. And um, then to fast forward, um, several months later, I had another franchisee um, who had come up with this idea with his, with his franchise consultant of coming up with a sandwich, a line of sandwiches that was high perceived quality to the consumer, right? But low food costs for the franchisee. So what he had found out was that our supplier actually had on hand these ciabatta loaves. And so, um, so these ciabatta loaves, because of the density and the texture, it has a high perceived quality and taste, high perceived quality of it. Sure. But the fact was it would cost less than a regular size uh, loaf of sandwich, a bread, cost less. And because the surface area was smaller, we did not have to put as many proteins on it or, or vegetables on it. So the food cost was like 26% at three ninety nine. Oh wow! They flew off the shelves, flew <laughs> off the shelves. Now, again, we didn't tell the chief marketing officer about it. <laughs> <laughs> because we really wanted to prove this out. So, so he started this in Temecula. He had his other stores do it. We eventually, had, I think we had 20 stores in test doing this. All stores were up double digits, right? Well, and so I, I brought it to her and I said, look what we've done. And she said, this is great. Stop it. Because it didn't have her approval. Now, so here's the irony of the whole situation is that they are, I believe, they are now on Subway's menu. They're called Shabbat Toasties. Sure. So again, you, you um, franchisors, successful franchisors, have got to put their greed and their their ego to the side, and franchisees who are look or potential franchisees need to vet that out um, before they decide to go with a brand because that's that's going to kill any any brand.
Well, and so first of all, my question is, was this pre-Rigo? Were you pre-Rigo when it was yes, still owned by Quiznos? I was pre-Rigo. Before yes. Rigo, but okay. Yeah. So Rigo seems like they they're they really are trying to like figure mm -hmm. this thing out, right? Like mm -hmm. they, they brought in some smart guys that are really trying to, to solve it. So that's interesting. Um, I would also say that the, this, the tag on your last point, I just was curious about that timing, but the tag on your last point, remember too, that the franchisor is like, uh, the franchisor is selling you on the concept of buying a store from their thing. So you're gonna talk to a sales guy who who's getting comped on whether or not you buy and then the references that they're going to give you anybody who sells with references is going to give you good references so if you're going to go buy a franchise go talk to the guy who's killing it because you want to emulate him right mm -hmm. i have great mm -hmm. locations i have a great team i'm making a lot of money but then drive down the street or out of that district or that market if the guy owns the whole market and go to other stores and just go talk to those guys too, right? Because they're going to present the best face forward they can because they want you to buy those franchise agreements. Mm -hmm. So you just make sure that, you know, you're also talking to the other operators. Like who was it that Papa Murphy's Pizza, their, their FDD had uh, the numbers, but they were all from like Boston where like mm -hmm. they came out of, you know what I mean? And it was mm -hmm. like, and then, you know, it was also Boston, which is a higher East Coast market with higher prices. And so then they were using those. The FDD is the agreement that like is the big franchising agreement. And you have to put financials in there. And so, for instance, be leery of those financials. Like with Papa Murphy's, I believe that they were only showing like Northeast financials. And those numbers weren't translating to Iowa and Colorado and all these other places where people mm -hmm. were like thinking, I'm going to make 700, 800,000 a year. And then they're selling three, you mm -hmm. know and they're dying. So just, I would say, take a look at that. Um, wow. So, and I knew we were going to have a super long podcast today, Jeff. So I hope you have time because I know we've gone I, over, but I, I really want to actually have to, this I have to get in my, uh, forgive me. I have to get in my car to drive to a meeting here in a couple minutes. Uh, um, I can certainly okay, talk cool. to we'll, the we'll bust through the next questions really fast. Yeah, okay. of course. But we'll go through the next questions really fast. What's the big project or initiative that you're working on? Yeah, the big project right now is I'm using uh, real estate intelligence to help a, a brand determine the trade area profile and site success profile nice. to map out their next 50 locations in Southern California. You know, it, it's, you know, real estate intelligence has come a long way from when I was with Subway and we just kind of threw a dart at a map, right? So, um, yeah. so what we're doing is, is we're, we're combining the customer information they have from their loyalty app and their e-commerce site with uh, geofenced mobile tracking data to determine you know where their customers live work and shop and from that information uh, we get a profile of the key user groups in their market it's really pretty creepy about what these <laughs> mobile tracking companies know about us they not only know where we live they, they know all about us <laughs> right and then what they do is they profile yeah. us they put us in key user groups and then um, once you have those profiles, they can overlay that onto a, a map of Southern California, and they can target the trade areas where most of those people live, work, and shop. And they'll tell you, you need to be in this, this trade area, this trade area, this trade area. Here's the co-tenants you need to be with. Here's the size of the shopping center, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
So um, my client's going to be using that profile to target, also target their local marketing so that, you know, instead of, you know, in the olden days, you used to just send out 10,000, uh, you know, flyers. Out, flyers. Right? Yeah. Well, now it's, you know, flyers or, or um, you know, uh, now what you can do is you can target exactly what rooftops any marketing is going to go to. It's a little bit more expensive, but otherwise, you know, you just kind of spray and pray that, that people are going to bring them in. Well, now what you can do is you can target the specific rooftops who are your pro your customer profile, and it's much more effective. I remember when we did that at uh, at Yogurtland, um, we had double digit in sales increases every time we did a promotion like that. So that's what I'm. That's the big biggest project I'm working on right now with one of my clients. Oh, that's really cool. I I got to put you in touch with my old boss Brian Ferris who. Uh, he used to do that for like Schlotzky's and stuff. And, and mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, it is, that is so, it is creepy, but I mean, that's the epitome of marketing, right? Deliver the message to your potential customer in a way that they want you to receive it. Like that's mm -hmm. all we're trying to do. And I mean, let's be honest, that's what we do with cookies on websites. It's the same thing. We track everywhere you go, every ad you look at, you know, so it, it it's all the same. And that's just the way it is now. But, mm -hmm. but then for the, the consumer, yeah, you pay more for those addresses, but then you, you save money on printing because you're not printing a hundred thousand coupons. You're printing, you know, 1200 that are actually going to get returned. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it all works itself out in the wash, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Cool. Okay. So, so that's cool. Let's go to the next question then. Um, question number three. What is the one thing in the industry or your business that's keeping you up at night? Yeah, I think it's keeping up with the warp speed of technology. It's, it's just moving so fast that if you're not getting ahead of it, you're going to get fall behind. Is, you know, it wasn't that long ago that you know, drone delivery and robotics and AI were future trends. Well, they're not only here right yeah. now, but the next phase of technology is already in process. So yeah. you, you've, got to, you've got to keep pace with it. And, and you've got to have people in your organizations and as, a, and as an operator, you've got to keep pace with it. Um, and, and it's not only that just the technology, but it's the cost of keeping pace by integrating the increasing number of digital platforms so that they all talk with each other. Yeah. Um, so just imagine if you have multiple delivery platforms and you've got a loyalty app. And I mean, I mean integrating yeah. all those into one is, is very, very challenging. Well, I mean, that's why Olo's crushing it mm -hmm. because they take four tablets and they make them into one tablet that sinks into your, your register system. Mm -hmm. And, and I do want to tag on to this point because obviously I'm a tech company, right? But, and by the way, Jeff, if you like to listen to books on tape, cause I know you live in SoCal and you have to drive around and probably spend 10 hours a week on the road, but you should listen to the adaptation advantage because it talks mm -hmm. about, um, it talks about what we're calling like the fourth industrial revolution, which is what we are in right now. But it just talks about too, like how as human beings, we're going to have to become more adaptable and sort of the way we've done things for the last hundred years is going to just be changing because, you know, just the way technology is moving at a pace. But I, so you should check it out. But mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, to go to your point with the technology is this, and like, and I just literally wrote this blog, I think last week, it'll probably go out this week, but you're, if you don't have, like, for instance, we do operations management software, right? And mm -hmm. our software is, help, is there to help 
people manage their multi-location businesses better because uh, the way the restaurants still work today until we're fully roboticized, there's still going to be people that need to go in and look at stuff and do things and assemble things and make food and all that. And so we try to manage that portion of it. And mm -hmm. this technology, our technology is relatively new in the scope of technologies. Like, but the last five, six years has seen everybody implement like better POSs, better delivery, better online ordering. But I can tell you for a fact that my customers are are incrementally getting better than those of you who aren't using a technology like mine. You mm -hmm. might not see it yet. Mm -hmm. you, you might not see it like yet, but they are because they have data that you don't have and they are using that data to increase sales, to increase customer satisfaction, to identify issues in real time across all their locations. And, and it's not just me, I have competitors too. And so we are, enabling a percentage of the restaurants out there to get better than you right mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. And, and we're at the very beginning of our technology, right? Like we're, we only, our technology only got invented in like 2010. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's crazy and, and you can't afford, I call them dinosaur operators, right? You can't afford to be a dinosaur operator anymore. Mm -hmm. no. Like you can't afford, if you don't have a, a strategy that, for your business that is based around uh, repeatable process systems and data-driven decisions, you you're going to wake up one day and go, what the hell happened? Yep. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. that's literally coming right now. Mm -hmm. So totally agree. Uh, and it's technology uh, is changing uh, consumer expectations. And so if quickly, oh my gosh, yep. The best thing and the worst thing that ever happened was the consumer review. Mm -hmm. Because like, you know, the Facebook thumbs up, thumbs down button is one of the greatest and worst things ever. But you're right. Consumers, like we live in a world of magic now. 20 years ago, the world wasn't magic. Like you had to go physically do something. Like you had to go drive and get food or, you know, unless it was pizza, right? You mm -hmm. had to like, you understood the constraints of the world, right? Like, oh, well, they didn't grow enough potatoes. So there's no potatoes mm -hmm. in the grocery store or whatever. There's an avocado shortage. Like you, you understood that the world was full of constraints and that things happened and not everything was magic. But then somewhere over the last like 15 years since the internet and Amazon and all this stuff, we live in a mat and smartphones. We live in a magical world and people are, they expect magic constantly. Mm -hmm. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. And 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 what's crazy, I don't know if you've been in a restaurant lately, but restaurants are dirty right now. Like I the, the labor shortage is really stressing people and they're they're really struggling to keep up on stuff. But mm -hmm. I mean, you know, like people are hurting, like the businesses are hurting right now, and our expectations have gone up. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So there's a gap, but there's an operational gap that's happening where operations I think are getting worse in a lot of cases and our expectations getting higher. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that gap's going to really hurt the people who haven't figured out how to, how to manage it. Mm -hmm. no, so, you're exactly right. You got to get ahead of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting too, because we have a customer that we we had closed, but then they had this massive amount of turmoil organizationally. Right. And so then they were like, 
hey, we're not going to do it. We can't move forward right now because we just lost all these managers. And, and I was thinking to myself, well, you're keeping the stores open, right? So <laughs> you lost all these managers, but you're not shutting the units down. So mm-hmm. you're just going to like have these leaderless locations and with less accountability. You know what I mean? I'm just like, how does that work? Eh. Well, can I, can I, recipe, uh, but, yeah. can I yeah. dovetail your last question with Ops Analytica? Yeah. Sure. Because um, the one thing that I had thought our industry would be doing now that it isn't is Moneyball. Um, yeah. Because, you know, many industries, you know, professional sports, you know, baseball for sure, you know, have become so analytics driven. You know, they can track and control every measurable driver of performance. And I, yeah. I think the restaurant industry may be improving, but it's, to me, it's still in the dark ages. And that's where I think a company, yeah. and, and, and believe me, that Tommy did not set me up to this, but this is where I think Ops Analytica can help anybody because I, one of my one of my dreams is to be able to look at every specific task in a restaurant and connect the correlation between the completion of those tasks to sales and to profitability so if you can say boy if you do these five things you know that there's going to be a sales increase right you can start using analytics to drive yeah. your business well and that's literally the dream of the platform yeah, that was what got us to create the platform at the beginning. And as a matter of fact, we like paid, we had like one of our original like case studies was using was using the Moneyball terminology back in like 2015. Is that right? Is is this ability to manage your operations like you manage your sales? Mm-hmm. Right? Because every restaurant chain, because they all have POS systems they know their pmix they know their comps they know their voids they know what they're selling they know everything i mean we had a guy at quiznos who used to back in with sales data to figure out that people weren't buying their produce you know Mm -hmm. what i mean like Mm -hmm. that was off the garbage register system like everybody manages their business based off of sales 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 but nobody's managing it based off of operations and controlling what you can control. You know what I mean? No, it, you're exactly right. And, I'm not and smart enough to like do you this. Said, yeah. I was saying, I'm not smart enough to do this, but somebody's got to be smart enough to build a macro that, that you can manipulate and you can say, okay, well, if I get 80%, yeah. if I do this 80% of the time, I do this 75% of the time, this is the sales that are going to result. There's got to yeah. be a way to figure that out. Yeah, well, and and I mean, would you agree with this statement? Like, so I have a theory that I've written about too. That like it's the based on the Pareto principle, right? That eighty twenty split. That there's a ever changing twenty percent of restaurant companies that are the most profitable. They they get eighty percent of the profits. Mm-hmm. They are whatever the hottest brands are right now. Right, like right now, I would they would probably be Mod Pizza and then that Chicken Finger Place. So, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's always like, you know, there's always some brands that are just crushing it. And then the the rest of the restaurant industry is like sort of the 80%, like the Burger Kings. Like they're profitable, but like, you know, nobody really cares. They're not like making any waves, right? They're not being written about every day. But like, um, but I, I honestly believe like there's just, 
I feel like good at, I feel like people just look at restaurant operations as, Hey, we're doing everything we can. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. we're doing the best we can. And, and, and it's been hard, right? Labor has been a problem for years. Like even before the pandemic, even before all this BS that's going on right now, labor's always been an issue, but like, I just feel like I go into so many restaurants and, and it's just like, eh, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know if you get that same impression. Yep, it's just kind of like, there's no excitement. There's no excitement. There's no, I'm, I'm trying to kill it for the customer. Like I, you know, there's no, there's just no excitement. But then when you go into those brands where there is excitement, you go to a Torchy's taco or, you know, you go back to a Cheesecake Factory or a PF Chang's back in the early 2000s when they were in their heydays. And, you know, or you go into a mod where there's a line and people were making pizzas and they're screaming to each other. And, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And it, there's mm-hmm. like an energy. And, you know, those restaurants, like those are the ones that, you know, they're in the moment of being great. Like they're in their growth moment. And, but they also seem to be systems. They're always the same. It's always the same combination. Mm-hmm. systems, managing to the numbers, data, process. That's the key success factor for any restaurant chain. Mm-hmm. And I totally if you don't have that. it, you're just going to blah. Yeah. Well, thank you for the plug. I, I appreciate that. Um, oh, absolutely. And you, um, I do actually do have to get in my car right now. Okay. We're back with Jeff. Jeff had to jump in his car because our conversation was uh, going so well. He had to take off for another appointment here. Um, so Jeff, I do want to tag on to what you were saying about the money ball aspect of running restaurants, because it's really interesting. Um, well, I think it's interesting. Who knows? You might not, um, is that, you know, as everything evolves, right? Like when we started the platform, it was all about, you know, X, Y, and Z, but you know, we've been doing this for over six years now. And my thinking on checklist design, um, and, and, and how the platform is supposed to be used uh, has like completely evolved, you know, really uh, so much more really since like 2019, like it, it's really changed. Um, and, you know, oftentimes just so you know, so I had this operations management software, people give us their checklists and processes and we put them into the system and then we try to um, make them better. Um, but if nothing else, we try to at least make sure that people are doing them and that you can see all the data. But what I've been realizing, and part of it's from working with you at ACE and then also with another one of my, like my actual first paid clients still with us from 2014, even before we were a company. Um, but like is really understanding, like having a goal for each checklist, right? And each process, because what we have on paper, what people give me on paper, their current system is really the least common denominator system that they were able to create, right? This is the bare minimum that you have to do to whatever it is, right? The food safety checklist or whatever it's going to be. And, and, and oftentimes they're very glued to that checklist. Like, well, this is the way we do it. This is what QAs approve. We've got to do it this way. But one of the big reasons to move to a digital platform is to take advantage of all the things that come with digital, right? So for instance, like what we are doing with uh, 
the case photos, for instance, at ACE, where we have the guys out in the field taking pictures of the cases, and then we're able to blow those pictures up and evaluate them, and then and then provide feedback to the chefs um, to then you know correct what they might be doing incorrectly or give them tips to increase their sales, right? Yeah. And so I, I've. Re- I've really evolved that whole money. So when you said money ball, it like just rings such a bell in my head because yes, we want to get the data, but really it it comes back to what you said. What are the, like we pull, we as a restaurant operators, right? Multi-unit operators, we have to pull. There is no one lever, right? There's not like, you can't grow your sales in your business or grow your business by pulling one lever, especially in a business like ours. It's 30,000 little levers that you have to pull every single day to ensure that like everything's getting done. But then what I've been really thinking about is what's the goal of this process, right? What's the goal of a line check? What's the goal of a temperature check? But there is a goal. Is it food safety? Is it customer readiness? Is it quality? What is the goal? And then what's the quickest, most efficient, most accountability I can ram into this thing using technology to boost it, right? Mm-hmm. So that I accomplish that goal so we can get to those couple of levers. Because I was talking to another guy and he said to me, like, like we all end up, we're measuring all of this stuff, but not all of it is worth measuring, right? Like, not all of it has the same impact on your business. And we get so focused on, well, this is the way we always did it, or this is how we have to do it or whatever. No, like, what are we actually trying to accomplish? Right. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Let's, let's start there and rebuild this to be in a digital world. And, I, and I'll be honest, I'm as guilty as anyone else in this. You know, I try to have those conversations with people and a lot of times they just shoot me down and they say, no, we just got to do it like this. Right. And you're like, but you're missing the point, you know, let's find the right levers and focus on those so we can actually impact the business. Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Matter of fact, uh, years ago, years ago, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever heard of, I don't know if you've ever heard of broken windows theory. Have you ever heard of broken windows theory? Love it. Yeah, I we live by it in our house. Okay, great. Well, McDonald's, like in the respect of if we don't put stuff away, our house goes to garbage instantly. Like you leave one coat out, <laughs> and next thing you know, there's like a chicken running through the family room. You know what I mean? It's ridiculous. Well, there's. I, I encourage all your listeners to read a book called Broken Windows. Basically, the theory is this, um, <laughs> is that when you don't take care of things, it certain things, it communicates to the consumer that you don't care. And and because and then they lose trust in you because they begin wondering, well, if you're not taking care of this out here, then you must not be taking care of things back there. In other words, your kitchen, right? Yeah. So um, uh, the, the, it, was, there was, it was actually based on a study that was done on crime in um, New Jersey. And they call it broken windows theory because they wanted to know, does broken windows cause crime or does crime cause broken windows? And what they found 
was actually did a side-by-side study, and they had they found that when uh, communities quickly fixed broken windows, the crime rate went down. If you left the broken windows up, the crime rate went up. So in other words, broken windows creates more crime. Or and or, the way it's translated into the food industry, is that when you don't fix things quickly so that the customer doesn't see it, um, then you lose trust in your consumer and then they don't come back. It's what creates lapsed users. Well, McDonald's learned about this theory and they said, we want to apply it to our restaurants. So what are those broken windows in in our restaurants that cause people to lose trust in us? And they identified, I think it was five or six key touch points that cause customers to stop coming. And it was like your front windows not being clean, the beverage area, the, the, the tables not being bust, the bathrooms, etc. And they focused their teams on those five areas to see the impact that that would have on loyalty and then sales. And sure enough, they found that there was a strong correlation between that. So you're right. It's finding what are those key broken windows that 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 create trust and loyalty with your consumers because they're not not all the same. Certain touch points are not the same as others. Absolutely, you know, and 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 it also goes like, and you could also take that like, which I totally agree with everything you just said, and like, you know, and I and I know you, like. There was a disconnect when I said, yeah, we suffer from broken windows theory too, but we do. In our house, if we don't straighten up, my daughter is like an eight-year-old terror, a crafting terror. <laughs> and if we let her leave a pencil out, like I will literally be like cleaning up like confetti and like there'll be, it's insanity how dirty our house can get immediately if we don't keep up on it. And that's broken windows too, because once yep, you see yep. that one thing is out, it's you gives you permission to just destroy the place. And that was the whole theory with the broken windows. Once I saw an abandoned building with one broken window, then everyone in town just said, let's get a brick and toss it through a window. And Hey, let's break into that car. And next thing you know, it's a chaos. You know, it's like that mob in the Simpsons where they always have that like angry mob that, that that's what it ends up becoming. And, 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 you know, and so, yeah. And I think that has to do with the food quality too. Like, like, yes, absolutely. The physical building, especially, you know, we always talk about front doors, windows, bathrooms. Those are huge. I mean, everybody knows that if you go into a dirty bathroom in a restaurant, if they can't keep that part of the restaurant clean, then the assumption is, is that they can't keep the kitchen clean either, right? Um, yeah. And so that that is like one of the oldest truths in restaurant management. Yet you still go into restaurants all the time with dirty bathrooms. It's insane to me. Um but having said that, like, it, yeah, it's about measuring and controlling the right things, right? But you can't even measure and control the right things unless you have a system or, or a platform in place to collect that data. Because what we're finding is, is that it's really not like, like, like I used to preach compliance. You got to have 80% compliance, right? But it's really not compliance. It's non-pencil whipped compliance is what you really care about. So it's generally like not one measure, it's multiple measures combined together, which are actually gonna tell you the real story on things. And and I would also suggest that 
that that the same broken windows theory happens um, and I, on order accuracy and taste as well. That if you eat something and it's and like you get chips and there's like a you know someone poured like a gallon of salt on the chips and they're inedible. That like not only are you upset that the chips suck, but that you now don't trust, like, you know, you don't trust the cook, right? Or you don't trust that the other food's going to be okay, and you you almost go into it with like a negative connotation versus a positive connotation, which is what the restaurant wants you to have, right? Like this is all going to be delicious. So, well, you know, this so reminds true. me, you know, uh, even back in nineteen. I think it was 1992 um, when I was with Subway was that we practiced a form of Moneyball. I didn't realize it at the time, but, you know, every um, month the company would publish in its newsletter the correlation between audit scores and sales. And they would show you that the stores that had the highest uh, audit scores typically had the highest uh, you know, increases in sales, right? So there was a cor- correlation there. But I wanted to find out what was what were the specific areas on that inspection form that caused the sales to increase. Sure. So we tore all that information apart from all of our own inspections that we did to trying to find out, okay, isolate what are the most critical things that, that are commonalities between the ones that have increased sales and then to your bottom uh, quartile that uh, bottom sales declines, right? To figure out what those were. So what was interesting was we were able to identify, I can think of like five of them off the top of my head that they were. And once we knew what those were is we focused like a laser beam on them, right? So the most critical one of all was being out of a product that they wanted. So if you went to a store and you drove all the way during your 30 minute lunch break, to go to a store to get what you were looking for and they didn't have it, you lost that customer. So you've got to make sure that you have everything that's on your menu. That's got to be, that's got to be available. The second thing was, is, is you've got a half hour for lunch. And if I have to wait too long and we actually had it down to what that wait window had to be, it was the total wait time between the time you actually entered the store and the time that you left, you had that window to have it. If it wasn't within that window, you were going to lose that customer. Another one was, like to your point, is if they bought something and it wasn't what they expected because you made it wrong, right? Or you put too much of this on it or you didn't put this on it that's supposed to be getting it. Pissed people off. So um, I think there were a couple other ones that they were on there as too. I can't remember exactly what they were. But um, so the key to me with that one was you've got to take away those things that create negative experiences. You've got to make sure that you, you, you get the green but people expect you've got to be able to deliver on those things. So we focused on those five areas with all of our stores, and it really helped us drive sales. I've got to believe that, that companies can go up with things like that um, organizationally that are similar. And I'm going to lose you here in a minute. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm going through a bad sell area. Gotcha. Well, and you already told us your cringeworthy story, Jeff. So, you know, uh, you're good, man. This was a great conversation. Like I, I, I could have do this for three more hours. Um, I, I, I just loved it. I, I really enjoyed this podcast and uh, I want to thank you for being on today and I apologize for going long. Um, but, uh, 
you know, I, I just thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, I want to thank you for being on the show and we can talk soon. Okay.